and 4, 1 through 11. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and set in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That it is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and set to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, till he should see what will become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it may be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you, do not, which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? The word of the Lord. Well, in case you were not with us last week, uh, Eric and Jenny are out of town. They are traveling with family, and they will be back with us next week. And so we have been in a short series in the book of Jonah. And by short, I mean literally just last week and this week. So we are going to be wrapping up the book of Jonah today. And what we've done, if you remember, is that we've been focusing in on the theme of God's grace as it appears in the book of Jonah. Okay, and what we saw last week as we looked at chapter 1 is that a question got raised. How do we experience the grace of God in our everyday real time and real space lives? How do we experience the grace of God? And what we found out 
was that God's grace smells a bit like fish, that God sends crises, storms into our lives in order to do the thing inside of us that we can't achieve on our own. And God sends these crises not to the end of our destruction, but to the end of our restoration, right? But now that we're in chapter 4 of the book of Jonah, a different question arises as we think about the theme and concept of God's grace, And that question is, what is the cost of God's grace? What is the cost of God's grace? Now, that might seem like an odd question because we're Protestant evangelicals, and we tend to associate the adjective free when talking about the grace of God, right? God's free gift of grace. Now, that's sort of true, but Jonah and other places in the Bible would push back on the idea that God's grace is utterly and completely free that actually there is a cost associated, not only a cost to God, but a cost to us as well when we experience the grace of God in our lives. So that's the question on the table that I want us to be thinking about as we explore our passage together, is what is the cost of God's grace? Now, let's, before we begin addressing the question, let's do a quick recap of the story, okay? So here's Jonah. He is a prophet, and God comes to him and says, Jonah, I want you to get up and I want you to go to that great city of Nineveh and I want you to deliver a message. And Jonah says, no way. And he goes down to the city of Joppa and he gets on a boat headed for Tarshish. Now, remember what we said last week is Tarshish in Jonah's mind was literally the ends of the earth. So Jonah is getting as far away from God and his message as he can possibly get. And then, but God loved Jonah way too much to just let him sail off the deep end. And so he sent a storm. And it was so bad that even the expert sailors didn't know what to do. And so they turned to Jonah and say, what do we do? How, what do we have to do to you to make the storm stop? And Jonah says, you have to throw me overboard. They're not thrilled about this plan, but inevitably they do it because they have no other options. And immediately the storm stops. And Jonah sinks down into the ocean and gets swallowed by a giant fish and survives inside of the fish miraculously for three days and three nights. Side note. If that's the part of the story that really trips you up and you're like, that is stupid, come talk to me afterwards. I would love to talk more about that, but we're just going to assume that the text literally means that, that he survived literally three days and three nights inside of a giant fish. Okay? Okay. So then fish barfs him up onto dry land, and God comes to Jonah a second time and says, hey, Jonah, How about taking that message now? And Jonah says, yes, sir, right away, sir. And he goes to the city of Nineveh, and he delivers God's message. Forty days, and Nineveh will be overturned. And Jonah is only one-third of the way through the city, and everybody believes him. And then we get to our passage, which begins in chapter 3. And the king of Nineveh himself gets the message, and he declares a citywide fast. Every man, woman, child, and animal, from the greatest to the least... Don't eat, don't drink, put on sackcloth, and repent. Now, it seems a little unfair to make the animals do it, but, you know, whatever. Uh, So then we get to chapter 4, and this is where we're going to spend our time today. We're going to be looking at chapter 4. Where do we find our notorious prophet Jonah at the beginning of chapter 4? Well, he is sitting outside of the city, and he is having quite the pout fest. Um, He is having what I like to call the quadruple P, the personal pathetic pity party. Right? He is very, very upset. And why is Jonah so upset? Well, because God is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. Gosh darn him. <laughs> Jerk. 
let's break it down. What, why is Jonah so angry? Well, Jonah is angry because God did not destroy the city of Nineveh. He did not annihilate 120,000 people off the face of the planet. Now, at first glance, it might seem like Jonah is a sociopath. That Jonah doesn't need to be sitting outside of a city under a plant. He needs to be sitting in a psychiatrist's office, right? Like, guy's got issues. And there might be, some, there might be something to that. Um, I've also heard people say this about Jonah. They said, you know Jonah's problem? Jonah's a racist. Go back and read chapter 2 in the book. Jonah has no problem with the grace of God. He celebrates the grace of God. He rejoices in it when the grace of God is for Jonah and for the people of Israel. But when God applies that same grace to a different group of people, suddenly he's upset. Jonah's a racist. Now, let's be clear. Jonah is definitely ethnocentric. Okay? And actually... The charge of ethnocentrism is something that God levies before his people all throughout the Bible. That's not a new problem for us. However, if we stop there, if we just stop at Jonah's a sociopathic racist, we're really doing an injustice to Jonah, to ourselves, and to God's word. Okay, so we need to get the full picture here. And in order for us to get the full picture, we have to ask the question, who are the Ninevites? Who are these people? Right? Because remember last week what we said, Nineveh doesn't exist anymore. It's not a city in our modern world. We don't have a frame of reference for it. So when God says to Jonah, get up and go to that great city of Nineveh, in our minds, he may as well have said, get up and go to that great city of Camelot. It is a silly place. We don't like, what is it? Who are these people? Where is this place? So I told you last week that Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Who were the Assyrians? Well, in the ancient world, there were six major empires. Okay? First, there was Egypt, then Assyria, then Babylon, then Persia, then Greece under Alexander the Great, then Rome. Six empires. Now, each of them had a chunk of history where they were top dog, where they were like the people to mess with. They, and they, each of them had a chunk of history where they kind of dominated the known world. Okay? So this time in history is when Assyria is on the rise. They are conquering nations just right and left. They have yet to lose. In fact, Right before the book of Jonah, Assyria had just conquered the nation directly north of Israel. So they are a looming threat to the people of Israel. Now, this is actually very hard for us to to feel, okay? Because we live in America. And America is a world power. And it has been a world power for many, many decades. Militarily speaking, economically speaking, politically speaking, we have a lot of sway in the world of global politics, okay? So we're going to have to use our imaginations to really identify with Jonah, okay? So let's, let's put on our imagination caps. Imagine that you live in a country that's very small, and it doesn't have a big military, and it doesn't have a lot of money. And it, you don't, the country doesn't have a lot of political sway. 
And then here comes this big, bad empire with this really killer army, and they are right on your doorstep. How would you feel? Intimidated? Afraid? Maybe a bit resentful? Because, like, who said these guys get to be on top? Right? So that's, that's in there for Jonah. But let's, let's dive a little deeper. What was the secret of Assyria's success? Well, there's a number of things we could give to the answer as an answer to that question. But one thing that we know of from history is that Assyria was an incredibly, incredibly violent people. They were brutal. They, were, they out-brutalized all of the other nations around them. If you go right now, and you get on an airplane, and you fly to London, England, and you go from the airport into the city, and you go to the British Museum, inside the British Museum, you will find an exhibit from the Assyrian Empire. Inside of this exhibit, you will find artifacts from the Assyrians and even from our beloved city of Nineveh. I'm going to stop the accent. I know it's distracting. Sorry. Uh, (laughs) If you go to the museum and you see these artifacts, among the artifacts from ancient Assyria, you will find frescoes. Frescoes are like a kind of wall painting. And these frescoes depict things like the Assyrian army impaling their enemies on poles and then placing those poles on the city wall. It was basically an early form of crucifixion. There are other pictures depicting the Assyrians flaying their enemies. That's where you peel the skin off of someone's body while they're alive. It is a horrific form of torture. And if you go right now, and you t- if you have a Bible, don't do it right now, but go this afternoon and go to the book of Nahum. It's, in a, it's really close to the book of Jonah. And in the book of Nahum, there is a pronouncement of judgment against the people of Nineveh. Because this, this group of Ninevites, they repent. But a generation later, they are right back to their brutal ways, and God pronounces judgment on them. And if you read the first part of Nahum chapter 3, Nahum says things like, Woe to that bloody city where there's heaps of corpses, corpses without number. So many corpses, they are literally stumbling over the bodies. And then it concludes with, and why? All for the sake of the whoring harlot, which is an ancient way of saying what we might, how we might put, all for the sake of obscene prophet. Are you starting to sympathize with Jonah just a little bit? Do you realize what, what, who the Ninevites were? Nineveh was not a nice place. The Ninevites were not generally nice people who did one or two naughty things. These were wicked people. These were evil people. They were not only violent, they celebrated their violence. They built their civilization on violence. Do you realize what God's word is telling us here in the book of Jonah? It's telling us God shows mercy to wicked people, to evil people, to the most heinous, evil, wicked people that we could ever imagine. God shows mercy to tyrants 
and terrorists. God shows mercy to murderers and moral monsters. God shows mercy to racists and rapists. God shows mercy to the pimps, the pushers, the pornographers, and the pedophiles. What is the cost of God's grace? The cost of God's grace is our limitations upon it. And we all have them. Even if you are the kind of person that would describe yourself as a very inclusive person, you're like, I don't judge people. I accept everyone exactly how they are. I don't judge. Well, I would ask you, how do you feel about people who do judge? Right? (laughs) I mean, it's true. We all have those people in our lives that we kind of draw the line in the sand and we say, look, God loves everybody. He shows mercy to all different kinds of people, but God would never show mercy to that person or to people like that. God would never show mercy to Nazis. God would never show mercy to white supremacists who lynch people based on the color of their skin. God would never show mercy to terrorists who blow up buildings and kill people for no reason. God would never show mercy to greedy corporate executives who exploit the poor for their own financial gain. God would never show mercy to people who harm and abuse children. And yet... It is the Ninevites in our passage who experience the grace of God. Or maybe for you, maybe the line of limitation isn't so generic out there. Maybe it's really specific. God would never show mercy to the man who sexually abused me. God would never show mercy to the person who betrayed me. God would never Show mercy to those people who took advantage of me. But what does God's word show us? The very people who do not deserve the grace of God in our passage are the very ones that receive it. Now, I realize, when having said that, I am in danger of losing some of you because you have been so hurt And you've been so wounded. And you've been so harmed that the very idea that God would show mercy to somebody like that who would do that thing to you just feels impossible. And I'm asking you, please, don't shut down yet. Stay with me. God hates what happened to you more than you do. He is more angry and more upset than you are about the harm that happened to you. Okay, and we're going to talk about what God does with that. And uh, Okay, we're going to talk about that later. Just stick with me, okay? Okay. What is the cost of God's grace? The cost of God's grace is our limitations upon it. Now, I realize that that raises a really big question for us. 
Why? How, how could God show mercy to people who do things like that? How could he do that? Why in the world would God show mercy to people like the Ninevites? Well, that's actually a two-part question. Why and how? Let's first address the why. That actually appears in verses 10 and 11 in chapter 4. So, in chapter 4, we get this wonderful picture with the plant. Okay? God causes the plant to grow, and then it gives shade for Jonah's head. Jonah's happy! And then God sends a worm to kill the plant, and the plant dies. Shade goes away. Jonah is epically sad again. Um, So then... God comes to Jonah at the end of chapter 4, and he gives him with this wonderful rhetorical argument. He says, do you do well to be angry about the plant? And in a very Jonah-like fashion, Jonah replies, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. I, I really like Jonah. I really do. Right? And so then what does God do? He does this wonderful, loving, like, kind of turns the light and the mirror onto Jonah and says, you know, you pity this plant, but you didn't create the plant. You didn't make it grow. Shouldn't I care about the city? Now, do you see what God's doing there? He's contrasting himself with Jonah. He's saying, okay, Jonah, unlike you, I didn't create the plant, and I did create the people. Why does God show mercy to evil and wicked people? Because he created them. Every human being that has ever lived from the most heinous, wicked person you could ever imagine to the little baby, to that little old lady down the street that used to make you cookies. Like, God made all of them without distinction. And Psalm 145 tells us that God loves all that he has made. But not only that, not only does God love what he has created, but every human being that has ever lived is made in the image of God. We get that from from Genesis, from Genesis 1 and 2. That means that every human life, because every human life, because we are made in the image of God, has value, dignity, and worth. Now, Two little asides I think are important. Maybe you're like me, and you grew up a good little Protestant, and you think that God loves me because Jesus died for me. That is not true. God loves you because he made you. And Jesus died for you because God loved you so much. But let me address the other people in the room. If you are not like me, and you're kind of new to this Christianity thing, and you're like maybe even a little bit suspicious of it, Uh, we take for granted the idea that every human life has value, dignity, and worth. We just assume that, don't we? We think it is a self-evident reality. We're like, well, of course, duh. That is not an assumption that has been shared by most human culture throughout most of human history. The reason that we assume this to be true is because we live in the West, And Western culture was shaped by people who believed the Bible. And so it got into the DNA of our thinking. So then even when we reject the Bible, 
we still hold on to some of its basic assumptions, namely that every human life, regardless of distinction, has value, dignity, and worth. But keep in mind, in Jonah's day and age, that would have been an offensive thing to say. Not just like, not an assumption that they hold, but it would have been offensive. As offensive for us to say right now in our culture, no, you cannot do whatever you want with your body because your body does not belong to you. I mean, some of you are like, it's, yes, it's an offensive thing to say in our culture. The Bible is kind of is an equal opportunity offender for all culture, okay? So those are two things to keep in mind. But that, that gets at the why. Why does God show mercy to evil and wicked people? Because he made them. And because he made them, he loves them. And because they're made in his image, their lives have value and dignity and worth. But that doesn't really answer the how, does it? Because the Bible is also very clear that God can lovingly prevent us from continuing in evil behavior. He can lovingly judge us. Now, we tend to like separate out there's like God's love and God's judgment and don't let those two things touch. But actually, the Bible says God's judgment is a part of his love. Because he loves all that he has made, he stops those who harm his creation. So how is it that God can show mercy to people who do such wicked and heinous things without becoming an enabler? Do you know what I mean when I say enabler? So hypothetical situation. This is not anybody that I know. This is just, I'm making this up, okay? Imagine a guy, he's an alcoholic, okay? Drinks himself unconscious pretty much every day. And it is affecting all of his relationships and his life. Uh, and what, often what happens is he drinks to the point where the next morning he can't get out of bed. And what happens? Well, his wife calls up the boss and says, Oh, he can't come into work this morning because he has a migraine. He has the, the flu. He's right. She makes an excuse. In this scenario, we would say that the wife is being an enabler. She is allowing the, her husband to continue the destructive behavior. You guys get what I'm saying? She is enabling his bad behavior. When God shows mercy to evil and wicked people, is he being a divine enabler? Okay, no. Just hear me say no. Okay, but I want us to see how that's the case. Okay? How is that the case? Um, well, in order to do that, I'm actually going to have to teach all of you a Hebrew word. Are you ready? Now, look, let's, between you, I'm going I'm to step down. This is, we're going to have real talk here. Okay, real talk. I did not do very well in Hebrew class. <laughs> so we're, that's between you and me. Okay, we're going to keep this between us. I actually only remember like seven words. Okay, this just happens to be one of them, and it's a really important word in the book of Jonah. Okay, all right. Step up back up here. Okay. All right. There's an important Hebrew word that shows up in the book of Jonah, and it gets used in a really interesting way. Really, really interesting. Uh, and I can't show you all the instances because it occurs too much. But I'm going to show you three, and I think by showing you these three, you're going to get a sense of how this word is being used. Okay? So first, let's, let's hear the word. Repeat after me. Ra'ah. That was really good. Let's, one more time just to make sure we get it. Ra-ah. Ra-ah. 
man, you guys are like well on your way to being Hebrew scholars. I like it. Okay, the first place I want to point your attention to is verse 9 of chapter 3, where the king tells everybody to repent of their evil ways. That phrase, evil ways, is actually just the word ra'ah. Ra'ah. Go two verses down to verse 10, where you see God relents from the disaster. Same word. God relents from his ra'ah. And then one verse later, where it says in verse 1 of chapter 4, where Jonas is exceed what does it say exceeding or displeased Jonah exceedingly right we t- most english translations do something like that he was exceedingly angry or something like that actually in the hebrew what it literally says is it was a great ra'ah to him it was a great evil to Jonah so what is ra'ah what is it it seems like It's this thing that when we have it, it's evil. It's bad. And when we have it, and God God can also have it, but his ra'ah seems to be in response to our ra'ah. Right? And it seems to be very connected to death. Right? I mean, literally, the Ninevites, their ra'ah is death. They're murderous, brutal people. But... God's ra'ah against Nineveh would have absolutely meant their death. All of them. And here's Jonah, filled to the full of ra'ah, and what does he want to do? He wants to die. So there's this connection between ra'ah and death. What is it? I think, again, we're talking about my opinion here, which is the correct one. (laughs) I think that what Jonah is doing with this word is he is using it to talk about our conflict with God. Because here's the thing. To be made in the image of God means, among other things, one of the things that it means is that we were made to live life unto God. That means we were created to live every single millisecond of every single day of our lives God's way, using God's methods, employing God's strategies, under God's authority, according to God's agenda, and unto God's ends. And when we live life that way, it puts us in harmony with God and with the world that he created, which is everything which would include ourselves, actually, right? That's how we were created to live. However, when we choose to live life our way, using our methods, employing our strategies, under our own authority, according to our own agendas, and unto our own ends, suddenly that puts us in conflict with our Creator, and ourselves in the world that he created. The Bible calls this sin. It's the shorthand for it. Sin. And what does the book of Romans tell us? The wages of sin is death. 
right? Because let's, let's be honest. If it, comes down between a, if it comes down to a fight between you and Almighty God, who do you think is going to win? But it is the grace of God that comes to the Ninevites and gives them the chance to let go of their ra'ah, to give it up so that they might live. Okay? But notice, it's not just the Ninevites who have ra'ah, is it? Jonah is filled to the full with ra'ah because God did not share his agenda for the people of Nineveh. But what is chapter 4 showing us? It is showing us God lovingly, graciously inviting Jonah to give up his agenda, to give up his ra'ah, to let go of it. You see, ra'ah can be like the Ninevites. It can be something big and splashy like murder and extortion and oppression and abuse. Or it can be something very, very subtle like self-righteousness, jealousy, pettiness. All of it is ra'ah. All of it puts us into conflict with our Creator. But the grace of God invites us to give up our ra'ah, to give up living life our way, so that we might live. What is the cost of God's grace? The cost of God's grace is our limitations upon it. Because God shows mercy to every kind of person without distinction, including moral distinction. God's grace is radically inclusive. But God's grace is also radically exclusive. Because the only people who can experience the life Giving grace of God are those who are willing to give up living life their way. The cost of God's grace is our ra'ah. And let's be honest with ourselves, that's not easy. You know what Jesus said it was like? He said it was like dying. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, he must first take up his cross and follow me. If anyone would seek to save his life, or Jonah might say, hold on to his ra'ah. That one will surely lose it. But if you give up your life, if you let go of your ra'ah for my sake and for the gospel, you will find it. The cost of God's grace is our ra'ah. We are called to die so that we might live. But, you know, I realize that leaves a lingering question. How, how do we do that? I don't know about you guys. I've been a Christian for over 20 years. I, do not, I could not even put a number to the amount of times that I have prayed the prayer, God, I am sorry, I repent, 
Thy, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. And then like two minutes later, I'm right back to living life my way again. Sometimes I have a hard time distinguishing the difference. <laughs> Am I living life my way or God's way? How do we do this? 2,000 years ago, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, condemned, and crucified, right before all of that happened, he was in a garden, and he was praying, and he prayed to his Father in heaven, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. What cup? What's he ta- what is Jesus talking about? What cup is... What, there was no cup there. He's referring to a metaphor that shows up in multiple places in the Old Testament. And the image is this, that there is this cup, and it's filled, infinitely full, of God's ra'ah. What happened to the ra'ah of God against Nineveh? Did God just forget about it? Did, he just, did it just disappear in the wind? No. It went into the cup. What happened to the ra'ah of God against the person who abused you, who, ne- who neglected you, who took advantage of you, who betrayed you? Did God forget about that? No. He put it in the cup. What happened to the ra'ah of God against every single instance where we chose to live life our way, using our methods, employing our strategies, under our own authority, onto our agenda and our ends? Did God forget about it? No. He put it in the cup. And on that night, God the Father put that cup in front of Jesus and told him to drink it. And Jesus begged him, if there's any other way. But the unrecorded response to Jesus' request was there is no other way. So what did Jesus say? Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus died to his will and his way, not so that he would live, but so that we would live. Friends, don't you see? Because Jesus Christ drank the cup of God's ra'ah fully, he drank it to its dregs. We are now being invited to come to him with our really crummy repentance and our really crummy turning away from our ra'ah. We can come to him with the most heinous and wicked thing that we could ever imagine. Or we can come to him with our self-righteousness and our pride And we can come to him and know not only did he give up his will 
for us in our place. But he gave up his life so that we might live. Friends, you can come right now. You can come right now, today, this minute. You can come to Jesus Christ for the first time or for the millionth and first time and say, help, help me. I don't want my kingdom come. I want your kingdom come. I don't want my will to be done. I want your will to be done. Help me. And he will hear that prayer. He loves it when we pray that. What is the cost of God's grace? The cost of God's grace is our limitations upon it because God shows mercy to every kind of person without distinction, including moral distinction. And the cost of God's grace is our ra'ah. We cannot experience the life-giving grace of God unless we are willing to die to our way of living life. But the cost of God's grace in our lives cost Jesus his life so that we would live. Let me pray. Father, I pray right now If there is anybody in this room who thinks that they are just too wicked, that what they did, you could never forgive them, that there's just no way that you would ever accept them because of what they've done, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would eradicate that thought and that they would come. You welcome them. And I pray for those of us who have been so hurt and so beaten up by other sinners in this world that the idea of letting go and forgiving them just feels like death. Oh, Lord, bring your death to our minds. Allow us to taste the life-giving grace that you have given us so that we might forgive as you have forgiven. Help us, Lord, for your glory's sake. Amen. Friends, we are